Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I want to welcome all of you in person. Thankful for all of you joining us online today. Thank you for participating in this worship experience. We're in a series right now walking through 2 Corinthians. Now, every Sunday of the year when we're in this room, in this space, uh, we're going to talk about the Bible. We're going to open the Bible, unpack the Bible. Even when there are Sundays that may be a topical sermon or we're in a three or four week topical series, we're going to open up the Bible. Every fall, we're going to have a lengthy textual study. It usually begins sometimes in August. It goes all the way to Thanksgiving. So usually we spend in the fall 12 to 15 weeks where I'll either preach through uh, Romans or a gospel or the Sermon on the Mount. I'll preach through Revelation, James, 1 Peter. Right now we're preaching through, walking through 2 Corinthians. Now here's the thing though, when you preach through a text, when you preach through a book in the Bible, you're tempted sometimes to skip the hard places, Especially those that are difficult to understand that it's hard to know what was happening 2,000 years ago and then it's even harder to try to apply it to what we're doing today. And today is one of those texts. It's, it's hard, it's difficult. There's a lot that we try to have to make assumptions about about what it meant in first century culture and then we try to apply it to the year 2023. So we're gonna give it a shot today and we're gonna get to that in just a few moments. Now, I've been telling you the last few weeks, so much of 2 Corinthians is Paul defending uh, a lot of his ministry. His ministry's under attack. His authority, his character has been under attack. So some of this is a defense. And Paul's, it's not that he's whiny. He's just helping to remind people about the gospel of Jesus and what it means to be the church. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 11 through 13, and this is not the difficult, hard part, but here's what Paul writes. Here's what Paul says. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and have opened our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are holding yours from us. And as a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. And let's stay there just for a moment. Have you ever been in a relationship with someone in which you have opened up your heart to them, but they have not opened up their heart to you? And this doesn't have to be a romantic relationship. This could be a relationship with neighbors, coworkers. But have you ever had a relationship in which you have opened your heart to them, like you have created space to help cultivate and grow this relationship, but whoever it is, they have not fully opened their heart to you. Now, also know we don't use this language all the time. I don't think any of you are going to go to work tomorrow or go to a neighbor's house today and say, hey, I'm opening my heart to you, but you're not opening your heart to me. This probably isn't language we use But based on what you hear from Paul, you get the sense that he's saying, look, me and some leaders, like we have opened up our hearts to all that you are, but we feel like you were closed off to us. Now, trying to apply this with the Sycamore View Church, I don't get the sense that the leaders are saying, hey, we're opening up our hearts to the church, but the church isn't opening up their hearts to us. I would use this as a moment to affirm this church, that we've been at our best and we are at our best when we're opening up our hearts to each other. So let me take just a moment to speak into a couple of things going on in the life of our church. I was supposed to, uh, and a few of us, we're going to be traveling to Israel this Tuesday. We were going on a trip. It's now been postponed and canceled. And you've probably seen in the news the war that is now happening in Israel. And I, just, I want to invite you to pray for the Middle East, pray for the world. We pray for peace. I want to invite you to pray for some of the friends Casey and I have been able to cultivate in a couple of the trips we've been to over to Israel. I want you to pray for Murad and his family. They live in Nazareth. I want you to pray for our friend Jack, whose home is in Jerusalem. I want you to pray for Laura Kando, a friend of ours who her and her family run a shop in Bethlehem. Let's just pray for the peace of God to come in that place and around the world. I want to remind you, 
one moment where I feel like we as a church open our hearts to each other. In August, we surround this room in a worship service, and we have students, and we have teachers, and educators, people who work in the school systems, and you fill out a card, and then others of us, like we go around the room, and we take these cards, and I don't know what you do with yours. Some of you keep them in your Bible. Maybe you put them on a mirror. But now would be a good time for you to, if you have not reached out to the person that you were praying for, put it on your radar to do that sometime soon. I keep these uh, right by my desk here here at church. And right now I'm praying over Beth Newtalk and Allison uh, Long. And I try to remind myself every day to lift them up to God and just the great work they are doing. But this is a way that we're opening our hearts to each other. A few weeks ago, we uh, sent a survey to the church in which around 300 of you, 250 of you responded in that survey. I wanna go through just a couple of things and I'm gonna do this really quick and the graphic that's gonna be shown is gonna be hard for you to see. I wanna work through three things. I'm gonna do this quickly and I'm doing it quickly because here's what we wanna do. On November 1st, which is a Wednesday, Wednesday night, and I know Wednesdays can be hard for some of us, but Wednesday night, November 1st, from 5.30 to 6.30, we're going to eat together here at the church. We're going to cater in a meal. We're going to ask for some donations. We're going to eat, and we're going to fellowship. And from 6.30 to 7.30, we're going to meet in this room. There'll still be children's classes. The youth group will still be meeting, but we're going to meet in this room, and Jim Hinkle and I are going to walk us through line by line, point by point of this survey. We're going to just walk through it, and then we're going to share a few things to expect as we get to 2024 and beyond. But in the survey, we asked a few things of you, and, and one thing we asked was just the top three strengths of the church. And it's, I know it's going to be hard for you to make out. I don't even know those of you at home right now who are online, if it's easy, easier for you to see. But if you go to that next image, thank you, right there. And I have four things because number three and number four on what you see were tied. They're like one to two responses away from each other. But what you affirmed and confirmed about this church is that some of our strengths is that far, I mean, number one was way out there in front, was that we value youth and children's ministries. Number two is that we are a missions and service-oriented church, which has been deep in the DNA of this church since our beginning. And number three and number four, which were right by each other, is that we're a welcoming and open-minded church, and that we offer and we have engaging worship experiences. Another question that we asked was about objectives, about goals, and on the graph, one, one and two were close to each other, but the top three was that we, you were saying that you want us to help increase connections within the church. There is a hunger right now within this church for fellowship and to know each other. We still have a number of people in the life of the Sycamore View Church who've been here 20 plus years, and we're thankful to God for those of you who have come less than five years, but you express a desire for deeper connection. Number two and number three somewhat go together, but that we want to revive worn out areas, and we want to reimagine outdoor spaces. I don't think anybody in this church would make an argument saying that this campus, this is the church, but I do think people would articulate and say that we want this campus, all 11 acres of it, to be immersed in the kingdom of God. And I think we know that, and maybe you don't know, but this building is open around 80 hours a week, not just for office space, not just office time, but where there are organizations and groups who are on this campus every day of the week. So we want to reimagine some of those things. And then we ask you another question. We ask you about some critical conversations because we want to be a church that's equipping the body for conversations that you may find yourself in with neighbors and coworkers all the time. We want to root ourselves in the Bible so that we can engage the culture for Christ. 
far and away the first conversation you want us to have or we want to go deeper in is that we want to pour into the next generation, which is one of our core values. And number two and number three, which were close to each other, is that we want to become a more inclusive church and you express, which really gets at this word called hermeneutics, but it's understanding how our ways of interpreting scripture help equip us to engage a broader culture. So how are we as a church reading the Bible together so that we can engage culture? I want to thank you again for participating in the survey. And on November 1st, would love to, for you to make plans to be here on Wednesday night. Now, back to Paul in 2 Corinthians. When it comes to opening up our hearts to one another, this is a pretty big deal for Paul. Because the unity and mission of God is on the line. So if we don't open our hearts to one another, in a way we're closing our hearts to God too. So we open up our hearts to one another. Now, as we get to one of the most difficult parts in 2 Corinthians, I'm gonna place five images in front of you, and these five images have some somewhat awkward uh, combinations in them. I'm gonna have three images of food, I'm gonna have images about apparel, things we wear, and then one last one. And all I want from you is a yes or no. Like, do you think it's a good combo or not? Do you understand? I think it's gonna be easy for you to understand. All right, the first one is this, if you go to this image. Pizza, is it okay to have pineapples on pizza or not? How many of you do like pineapples on pizza, all right? All right, and how many of you eat pizza like Jesus does? All right, no pineapples. All right, just joking, all right? all right? So I think you get what we're doing with a few of these images. The next image, and this is Topps Barbecue right here in Memphis, where it, they have nachos that are on flaming hot Cheetos. This is not just any chip, flaming hot Cheetos. How many of you would eat the nachos on top of flaming hot Cheetos? That's probably more than I thought, all right? Truett, my son, he eats flaming hot Cheetos every single Friday, a big bag of them, so I know he's all about it. Let's go to the third image. If, with your steak, do you eat ketchup? This is a big one. All right. Hey, and do not be ashamed in this moment. If it's you, be proud of what you do. How many of you eat ketchup with steaks? Yeah, and people will make fun of you, and that's okay. You be you. Like, you got to be you for the rest of your life. Let, let me go to this image about apparel because some people it's a big deal about mixing brands. On Sunday mornings, we don't care about mixing brands. I mean, I don't think anybody's gonna judge me right now because my shoes are from Macy's, my pants and my shirt are both from Old Navy because Jonathan Hardy and a few of us make one Old Navy run a year. My belt's from Target, so I'm mixing a bunch of brands. But for some people, when it comes to athletics, this is a big deal for them. Like, you don't wear Nike shoes, Adidas socks, and Under Armour shirts. When it comes to athletics, anybody here, you do not mix brands. Anybody, is this a big deal for you? All right, maybe we have a few. And the last awkward combo, if we'll just go to this last image right here. I don't know if you knew about this, all right? There's this great tight end in football, Travis Kelsey, and uh, you probably weren't aware that they, you can turn on to watch the Kansas Chiefs right now, and what you're gonna really watch is Taylor Swift in a suite, and maybe in commercials, they'll show you a play or two of the game, all right? Uh, <clears throat> you got all these combinations in life. So I want you just in your mind, I want you to think about combinations because in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, here's what Paul says. Do not be yoked with unbelievers. Now, this is difficult. Right? This, I, I think this is hard. Like for some of you, you may be like, this isn't really hard, but how this plays itself out in our lives and in the church and as we make decisions about relationships, this is a pretty big deal. And Paul says, don't be yoked with unbelievers. Now, for people in first century culture, what they're going to think, there's an image that would have come to mind for people in Corinth. And the image that would have come to mind 
is animals plowing a field. And as those animals are plowing a field, what they would have in mind is you don't put an ox and a donkey and yoke them together to plow a field. Either you're going to use ox, oxen, or you're going to use donkeys, but you're not going to get an ox and a donkey and yoke them together to plow a field. Because if you do so, they don't get along well. Their pace is different. So you're not going to yoke two things that are not meant to be together. And when Paul mentions this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he doesn't use the word marriage, but I think it is applied in 2 Corinthians 6 that Paul is talking about marriage and a marriage covenant. Don't be yoked with an unbeliever. Now, I think the bigger thing that Paul is trying to accomplish here, and I'll talk about this more in just a few moments, is a Christian's, a believer in Christ, a believer's relationship with non-believers needs to be something we take seriously. Now, what Paul doesn't say in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 is, do not be friends with unbelievers, don't, don't hang out with unbelievers. It's not that. He's talking about being yoked with unbelievers. Now, he follows that up with five rhetorical questions. So in verse 14, all the way through part of verse 16, you get five rhetorical questions. And I think you know how rhetorical questions work. The answer should be obvious. So what Paul says is for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? The answer should be nothing. Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? And this is another way, this is a word Jews would use to talk about Satan. The question four, what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? And I think we get how rhetorical questions work. If I come home after a long day, and Casey and the boys come home after a long day, and I say, hey, Truett Noah, Talk to mom and I, like, how did your day go? That's not a rhetorical question. We're not looking for good, fine, okay. We gave birth to you, or your mom gave birth to you. Like, we deserve to have, like, a little bit of an explanation. How did your day go? What is a rhetorical question is when I say something like, hey, Noah, do you really think it's a good idea to have six open bags of chips that stay under your bed for weeks? When I say that, I don't need an explanation. I'm not asking for dialogue. It's pick the chips up and don't do this anymore, right? It's obvious. As Paul states these five questions, after what he said in verse 14, it's obvious. Now, let me try to paint a scenario for you of what this would have meant in first century culture. I'm going to sit on a stool to do it. Sometimes I think some of you freak out when I sit on a stool, like, oh, he's talking about something really serious. I just want to create a few images for you of why I think for Paul this was so important, especially for churches in Corinth. I want you to imagine with me this. And I, I don't think I have to exaggerate to create this scenario. Imagine that you're a young woman who's a newlywed. All right, and in every house in Corinth, everyone would have had uh, little shrines, Right, little gods, like little g-gods, little bitty idols that would have been in every room of your home. And each one of those shrines, you would light it every day. You would, kind of like a candle. You would light incense by it every day. And as you entered into and out of a room, you would light that incense and you would pray to whatever that shrine was. Every house would have had these. It didn't matter how poor you were, how rich you were, you would have these shrines. So imagine being a young woman who is married. And your job every day is to go get water from a well. And as she goes to get her water to bring it home, she meets other women. 
and they strike up a friendship. And a few of those women begin talking to her about this new faith they have found in Christ. They start talking about this new community called the church, about the fellowship they have there, about this Jesus who died for sins. And as she goes every day to get her water, she ends up being invited into this story in which she professes her faith in Christ. She's baptized. She becomes a part of the church in Corinth. But her husband back home is not. So now the expectation in that home, especially for the man, because the man is probably the one choosing most of those shrines in the house, is that we pray to these shrines because they protect our home. They bless our home. If we want to have family and we want to have kids, there's this shrine we pray to, which is praying to the God of fertility. We want, we want the gods to bless the family business, and we need rain to fall. And for rain to fall, we pray to this shrine. So imagine now the scenario of you surrendering your life to Christ, yet you're living in a home with someone who has not surrendered their life to Jesus, who is isn't interested in Jesus, who expects the shrines to be lit every day and for, for us to pray through them for the divine blessing of what the gods may do for our home. Can you see the tension just a little bit? Imagine if you're a slave. And if you imagine slaves in the first century culture, I don't want you to envision an ethnic group or a color of a skin because in first century culture, it didn't matter. Anybody could become a slave. But most slaves had the job of lighting the incense for the shrines. So now, now imagine you're a slave in first century culture, and many slaves come to know, know who Jesus was. Imagine a slave who surrenders her life to Christ, and now it is still your job to, to light the shrines every day. And can you light the shrines and not pray to the shrines? What Christians were taught in the first century was this. Christianity is not a religion that you add to all your other gods. In Christianity, you were saying yes to Jesus, and you were saying no to every other shrine, every other little G-God, every idol that may be in your home. Now, I think we get that in our baptisms, like there's a yes and a no, like we're saying yes to Jesus, and we're saying no to all these other things, but a lot of times the way we think about that is we're saying yes to Jesus, and we need to learn to say no to selfishness and greed and coveting, and all that's really important, but in the first century, when you say yes to Christ, you were saying no to all those little shrines you had prayed to for years, that you had lit incense to for years, and now there's, there's, there's conflict now, what you see on the screen is 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, Paul writes to the churches in Corinth more than Paul writes to anyone else. Now, back up just a little bit. I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and let me show you a few things. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and I don't have time to read all of 1 Corinthians 7 to you, but in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks a lot about relationships. And he's not talking about relationships because he woke up one day and he said, you know what, I think I want to write about relationships. I think I want to be the first century Dr. Phil. I think I want to just preach a sermon because it's on my heart about relationships. He is addressing specific things going on in the churches of Corinth. Let me show you just a few of these. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8 and 9, it's now to the unmarried and the widows. I say it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do. 
But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. This is some of the advice he's given, giving because of specific things people are facing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, he says, To the rest I say this, I not the Lord. Because there are sometimes where Paul will say, The Lord says this, not me. And then there are times he's like, I, Look, here's, this is my advice. This doesn't come straight from the Lord, but this is my advice with what's happening right now. If any brother, really like any man, has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. So even though you come home and you can't agree about what to do with the shrines, if she's willing to live with you in peace, you don't divorce her, but you keep living deeper into your confession. And then he just flips it. If a woman has a husband who's not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. And in verse 15 he says this, But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. Look in verse 26 of chapter 7. Because of the present crisis, right, some of your versions, because of the impending crisis. So how Paul summarizes a lot of what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is, I'm writing to you because this is a crisis for many of you. Like, this is causing a lot of issues, so I'm trying to speak into it. In verse 32 through 35, he says this, I would like, to you, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of the world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right, in a right way in an undivided devotion to the Lord. And let's stay there just for a moment. Now, was Paul single his whole life or not? The Bible's not super clear about it. But there are some who make arguments that Paul, one day, that Paul was married. And some, some of the arguments is for Paul to have been a part of some of the Jewish groups he was a part of in leadership, that you could not have become a part of some of those groups without being married. What some people teach the Bible doesn't teach us. What, what some people believe is that the experience Paul had in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus, which was his testimony of meeting Christ, that at that time he was married, but that he had a wife who did not want to live into the story Paul wanted to, and that Paul was divorced. So sometimes when Paul is speaking about relationships, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he's speaking out of his own experience and brokenness. He has chosen to remain single for the rest of his life. Now, I'm not saying you have to believe this. This is just how some people are trying to process the life of Paul. What Paul is concerned about in chapter 7 is that people stayed in life, whatever state of life you were in, that there was an undivided devotion to Christ. And Paul's not the only one who speaks about relationships like this. Peter, the great apostle in 1 Peter chapter 3, he says this, Wives, in the same way, accept the authority of your husbands. In first century culture, this would not have been a surprise for anybody to have language of submitting and uh, accepting authority of husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won over without a word by their wives' conduct when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. 
This is a big deal in first century culture. So how do we talk about it today? This idea of being unequally yoked. Like, don't be yoked with unbelievers, and let me take a stab at it. I think this is a, a verse that needs to mess with some of you. And especially for some of our younger people, I'm talking maybe older teenagers, our college students, our young adults, some of our single folks who are pursuing a relationship. I think this needs to be a verse that you keep in mind. I think it should be a verse that you process and you pray through. And as you ask for a relationship and a partnership in your life, that this is on your radar, that to be a believer who has values, who wants to live on those values and maybe one day raise children who also honor those values, to have a partner in life who aligns with the values, it can be a really good thing. So let, hold this close to your heart. But I'm also not going to put it past God to occasionally open a door where there is a believer in Jesus who enters into a marriage covenant with somebody who's not a believer in Jesus. Casey and I have a dear friend. She's one of the most faithful disciples of Jesus that we know. She married a man who's an unbeliever, and here's why she did it, because she felt like God told her to. It's a really good way. It's a really good reason to make some decisions in your life. And I also know that I'm preaching in front of people right now that the marriage that you are in, you're married to somebody who has never claimed or confessed faith in Christ, or you're married to somebody who once did, but you would probably consider them an inactive believer. And I think the word for you from 1 Corinthians 7 and even 2 Corinthians 6 is for you to keep loving Jesus and be bold but not obnoxious. To be a faithful witness without being obnoxious. And for you to hold true to your confession no matter what. And I think for the singles in the room, whatever reason you may be single. There are a lot of different reasons people are single. For you to know that God's availability and God's uh, presence in your singleness is the same presence God has in a marriage covenant. And you are asked where you are to live a life that is devoted to Christ. I think overall what Paul's trying to address is what we should mess with every day, or what should mess with us every day of our lives. What should our relationship with unbelievers be? Because you can find the verses, that like friendship with the world is hatred to God. Like you can find those. And, and we want to teach our kids, and I want to help teach my children. I pray every day for my kids that God will raise up faithful followers of Jesus to surround them with a support system to help them grow in their faith. I pray the same thing for the younger people in this church. We want that for them. But you also have places in Matthew chapter 13 where Jesus talks about weeds and wheat. They grow together. And we're not the ones who are asked to judge them. Because I think another way to think about this is, if you don't have any friends who are unbelievers in your life, are you living out your belief the way Jesus wants you to live it out? And if we have unbelieving friends who don't know we're believers, are we living out our belief the way Jesus wants us to live it out? So as we ask God to raise up friends for us, who know Christ, and we ask God to raise up relationships for us with people who may not know Christ, we need to follow Jesus to meet people where they are without becoming who they are. 
And we can do this. We can do this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, here's what Paul says. You're a temple of the living God. So as he talks about relationships and relationships with unbelievers, he reminds believers, you are a temple of the living God, which would have been a mind-blowing truth for people in first century culture. That the God who for years, his presence was fully available in the temple, is now chosen to take up residence inside of people. And then you get two verses of these promises. And, and the way Paul does this, this, he doesn't just quote from Isaiah or from a psalm. Like he's, he just puts together about, I mean, it's hard to even know like where he's getting some of these. It's like four to five different places throughout scripture. But just listen to the promises that Paul lays out in front of them. That God has said, I will live with them. I will walk among them. I will be their God. They will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord and touch no unclean thing and I will receive you and I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters says the Lord Almighty full of these promises of God and don't read chapter 7 verse 1 separated from chapter 6 because I think the way Paul summarizes all of this is in chapter 7 verse 1 therefore and this is going to stay on the screen for just a moment this morning therefore since we have these promises that he just talked about let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. What Jesus wants for us is not just to be good people who do good things. It's to be holy people who do not live ashamed of Christ, no matter where you are in life. It's not just, Jesus didn't die, just die for you to be good people who do good things, but for you to become holy people who want nothing more than to live as a witness to Christ to every, that bears witness to Jesus in every relationship in your life. So this week, live a life unashamed of Christ because Jesus is not ashamed of you. And he's not ashamed of you. And we, we celebrate this every Sunday when we take the bread and the cup. We're reminded Jesus is for us. Jesus invites us. And Jesus continues to invite you into deeper places. Today, Doyle Bradshaw, one of our shepherds, is going to be to our right. I think Lenora Meyer and Rachel, I know both of you sit over here, but if one of you can come to this uh, prayer station over here and one remain over there, I'll be down here to the left. And if there's any way today as we take communion that we can pray for your marriage, your relationship with an unbeliever or non-believers in your life, we could pray over your singleness, like we're, we're here for you. And as we take the bread and the cup today, can we be reminded of the truth that will stay on the screen for just a few moments of what Jesus has done to make us holy and how holiness and abiding in the promises of God becomes a witness to the world of the faithfulness of Christ. So can we bow our heads and close our eyes? This morning, everyone here, you are invited to the table. And we move to the table and we move from the table because of Christ. And Jesus, for the bread and the cup that reminds us of the death, burial, and resurrection, of its impact on our lives, and the holiness that we have been invited into, will you bless this today? And for the words I've spoken, God, about 2 Corinthians 6, my prayer every Sunday is that the words will flow from me, that if they honor who you are and your character and your nature, that they will bear great fruit 
and that if I've said anything that doesn't honor who you are, that those words will fall to the ground, be trampled by your feet, and that they will not be remembered at all. All that we do today is for your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.